Well, good evening to you. I bring you greetings from Heritage Bible Church in Greer, South Carolina, and from TGC Carolinas, a newly formed chapter there that I'm grateful to be able to be a part of. I love our new home, but friends, I am so happy to be here. And if you ever wonder if I love you or this place, we named our dog Bosky. How about that? So people say, people say, you mean Bosco? I go, no, Bosky. What's that? And then I get to tell them about this strip of green that runs through the middle of this beautiful valley in Albuquerque. Well, I had in my own notes similar things that Ryan said. I'm not going to skip it, but I'm going to say he's in one of my top four. How about that? Um, I'm so happy to be here with Ryan and Dr. Wellam. There are several men in my life I count as most influential. There you go. These are two of them, beat maybe by the friend who invited me to church in eighth grade, and then the pastor who took me under his wing and taught me the book of Romans, Dr. Wellam, a whole Bible Christ-centered theology during the seminary years, and Ryan, the labor of wielding the Bible and Christ in the pulpit. And both, both men, uh, as husbands and fathers, also modeling what it is to to be a minister. These words are important. It's important to commend these kinds of things, to highlight it when it goes on. We are to hand the word down to faithful men, and it is a great privilege for me to have been entrusted by the word, with the word, by these these men. If you will, open with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. I'll make a number of comments before we start reading, but you can turn there. The Bible is a a puzzling book. Some people like puzzles and some people don't like puzzles. 2,000 pieces of cardboard on the kitchen table sounds like work to me. It sounds like fun to my wife. If I wanted to look at a picture of the Eiffel Tower or a cat, I would get out my phone. (laughs) But the Bible can feel that way to us, can't it? It can feel like a whole lot of work. Fair enough, the Bible can be a whole lot of work. But like a puzzle, get this, with time, it yields itself. It yields clarity. It reveals itself even. Puzzles are meant to be put together. The Bible's not like a mosaic with a whole bunch of scrap pieces that that we put together to make something that we might imagine. The Bible is like a puzzle that has its edges, that has its design, that has its own author, if you will. And we can discern how it goes together. Slowly, as you fit the pieces together, you begin to see the main things and the supporting things. And slowly, over time, you begin to see the whole thing. We're working our way through the Bible on the Bible's own terms, as Dr. Wellam has said. That means we're working our way through the Bible according to the Bible's own assumptions about what it is, which we've covered but also according to the Bible's own story divisions. And so the conference is built off of the Bible's own story divisions. And slowly with God's help, in a concentrated way over a weekend, we'll see how it fits together and we'll see the main thing, indeed the main person, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is work, but we believe that it's work that is worth it. That is, reading the Bible has great payoff. For as Paul wrote, Romans 15, whatever was written in the former days story of Noah was written in the former days, if anything was, it was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement, the scriptures might, we might have hope. So may our Lord strengthen our hope as we endure this weekend through the scriptures. 
We've considered Adam already, his creation, the creation of Adam as the head of the human race and all of creation, and we've considered the fall, and in this session we come to Noah. And if you aren't familiar with Noah, yes you are. Yes, you are. Noah has his own Minecraft game. Noah has his own 3D Super Nintendo game. Billions of children's toys on Amazon. They're cheap and they're all cute. I even found this book, Noah's Ark. I touched it. I collect books that I think are kind of funny over the years, and this is one I found on my shelf. And you might have touched it. There are pictures of planks of wood and everything. Next to Jesus, Noah must be the most popular biblical figure, I'd guess. And it's no surprise. Noah's story is incredible. It's a flood that covered the earth and a boat filled with two of every kind of animal inside. It's so incredible, it's one of the most unbelievable stories, often vehemently and energetically denied. And some say they've touched it. Some say it's a fairy tale. But if the Bible is true, then it happened, and it happened as it's described here in Scripture. So it's an incredible story. But it's an incredible story for a far greater reason than we give it credit for often enough. When we come to the Noah story, we may come with questions like this. What did the ark look like? Or how did he get all the animals in there exactly? And they're fine questions for curious people to ask. When we come to the Noah story, though, on the Bible's own terms, with the questions and the categories of the Bible, with the problem in mind raised by the Bible's story, we ask this instead. How bad is Adam's problem? How far does it extend? What does it deserve? And then this one. What does it mean, friends, that there was life on that boat? This story is incredible because it is incredible that God saves sinners. Thou must save and thou alone would get that from the Noah story. Noah may be familiar to us, but we want more than familiarity with Noah. We want through Noah to be familiar with our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that way this evening. As we get into the Bible story, Dr. Wellam and I will continually expound parts of Scripture in light of what came before and in light of what comes after, as we've described. So in this session, I want us to hear the story and then to discern how it fits with what came before in Adam and, and how it points us to Christ. So the story, we're in Genesis chapter 6. Our familiarity with the story softens with its many surprises. I'm going to walk us through parts of it, taking us through chapter 9. We'll walk or wade through the story <laughs> under three headers, before the boat, on the boat, and off the boat. I wish I would have thought of that before we wrote the book. I like that outline. It's a good outline. Okay, verses 5 and 6 describe life before the boat. How are things going for Adam's race by the way, well, we find out, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What happens when you leave Adam's race alone and just add time? You get this, comprehensive corruption, great wickedness, it's covering the earth, 
it extends to every thought and intention of the human heart. And it does this continually. And this internal rot had an external expression. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. Corruption in the heart. Yielding violence from the hands. The earth, God's earth, filled with human beings who bear his image, fill the earth with violence. The earth, a habitat for the worship of God by those made in God's image, is a habitat for the murder of those who bear his image. And violence against God's image bearers is violence against God. And it's our default setting. The earth was filled with violence. And is it not a familiar scene? Check the news. We can't help but think about school shootings, trouble in the Middle East, hermit countries like North Korea. Who knows what goes on behind those walls? Antebellum slavery on our own soil and the thoughts and the intentions of our own heart, the kind which give birth to it all. Friends, what makes a person to ponder, to plot, and then pick up a gun to murder children while they're at school? Every article and every person is asking why and how. And the Bible gives us an answer. It says more than this in a word, but in a word, it captures it. And everything that we might use to explain grows from here. And it's the answer of sin. Cain and Abel, first out of the gate, and a sign of things to come. The blood of violence found in that field now painted the whole earth. Cain's hand raised above his brother, rock in hand, is like a close-up freeze frame of the whole earth in Noah's day. Humanity unhinged, ruled by death. Humanity ruling with death. And what began with one act now fills the whole. And what began with one man, Adam, now spread to all men. The cancer which started in Genesis 3, which we have heard about, has metastasized by Genesis 6. What will God do? Where will the offspring of Eve that was promised, who would crush the head of the serpent, who appears to be winning, where will that son come from? Well, let's watch. Verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah, verse 9, a righteous man, blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. Well, could this be him? Could this be him? A terrifying plan for the world, a wonderful plan for this man. And what are these plans? Chapter 6, verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them on the earth. So make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark on its side. Make it with a lower and a second and a third deck. For behold... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. 
but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort unto the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that's eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So while the world hammered away at one another, Adam is, sorry, Noah, who's like an Adam, is hammering away at a boat. And that, of course, is absurd. Noah, the ultimate prepper, builds an ultimate storm shelter. And he doesn't stockpile water because he knows there's plenty of that coming. Instead, he stockpiles two of every kind of animal and samples from all the earth's seeds and then his family so that he can repopulate the earth after everyone is killed. Noah, a righteous man, looks to some a madman. The stuff of the best movies. The stuff of rural Texas. Ian. It's also the stuff of righteous man's obedience. Verse 22 again. Noah did this. All those instructions, what did Noah do? He did this. He did what? All that God commanded him. He may have looked like a fool, but verse 1 of chapter 7, then the Lord said to Noah, go in the ark, you and all your household. And now we've got Noah on the boat. And so we read verse 17 of chapter 7. The flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it it rose high above the earth, and the waters prevailed and increased greatly in the earth and floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the mountains under the whole heaven were covered. And waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swimming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Every breath stopped. Every living thing blotted out. The storm raged and man's rage was halted. Verse 23, only Noah was left. And those were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on earth for 150 days. Everyone inside the ark was safe. Everyone outside the ark was dead. Everyone under the cover of the ark, safe. Everyone outside, underwater. When we picture the ark, I often picture it as a giant boat. And that's what it was. It was a giant boat. But there's another, way, there's another way to imagine the ark. And that is a giant earth filled with water and a boat sitting atop. A little carrier for life. And that's it. The whole world under judgment. And there's Noah. 40 days it rains and then verse 14. In the second month, on the 27th day, counting to the days of the month, the earth had dried out. And God came to Noah again and said, Go out of the ark. And so 
Noah went. And so now we've got Noah off the boat. Don't think of the images of a region after a tsunami. This is just my guess. I can usually tell there was a civilization there. I'm not thinking you could tell there was civilization after this. Except Noah and his family, nothing was recognizable. The evil has been put down and humanity has been saved. And never since at that time had things looked so good since the garden. What does Noah do when he steps off the boat? Let's watch. He worshiped the Lord. He built an altar and made a sacrifice. Chapter 8, verse 21 now. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God has kept that promise. He has not repeatedly wiped out a serpent's offspring. And we live now with the kingdom of the serpent and the kingdom of God in tandem. He adds to his promise now a familiar commission. Chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, fill it. The fear of the Lord and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they're delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you green plants, I give you everything. We've heard God say this to man before, to Adam. More on that in a bit. For now, it's plain that what God started with Adam, he would continue. But now, something new. Verse 6. Some instructions, because the world's a different place. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So multiplication will continue but so will murder. And God advances his purposes for humanity in a context of a fallen world. If murder will continue, why should we not expect, we might ask, to end up right back where we did with another flood? Well, God promised he would not. And how do we know? Well, in chapter 9, verse 8, we have God's covenant with Noah. Now, what is a covenant? Put this simply, it's a chosen relationship between two parties ordered by specific promises. We're familiar with contracts in our context here. Covenants, we think of a covenant of marriage. We should all know that marriage is not like a contract. We could put it this way, a contract involves a relationship for the sake of obligations, but a covenant involves obligations for the sake of the relationship. And here, God approaches Noah with a covenant. Verse 8 of chapter 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, note this, and every living creature that is with you, the birds, livestock, beasts of the earth, with you as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. 
for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And so today, especially in this beautiful city, we look at a rainbow, sometimes a full rainbow, sometimes a double rainbow, and we remember the promise of God. Well, what happens next? What happens next? You know, Noah's father named him Noah. means rest or comfort. Hoping perhaps his son would be the one we can imagine. How high must expectations be for Noah now. If Noah was righteous before the boat, how much more after watching the judgment of God tear up the whole earth and after being rescued by God and now given this sign, what will Noah do next? Will he crush the head of the serpent? Verse 20 of chapter 9. Noah began to be a man of the soil And he planted a vineyard, and he drank the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. His kids drag him out, not looking at him. It's embarrassing. We're surprised, and yet we're not surprised. Noah, who walked with God, a son of Adam, drunk and naked in a tent, It's a strange scene. We don't know all what's going on here, but the meaning is clear. Noah is not righteous enough. Noah is not the promised son of Eve. That would save the world finally. Noah is a sinner. Noah, like the rest before him, lived out his days, it says, and he died. Noah needs a redeemer. And so does humanity. And so does the whole creation. Noah's descendants multiply. But how does that go? Do they fill the earth? No. They fill the sky with their bricks to make a name for themselves. And so this story of Eve's son to come is going to have some fits and starts and some fake outs along the way. We know where the son will come from. It'll be from the human race, the son of Eve. But how and who and when, for now, we don't know. That's the Noah story. Well, Dr. Wellam helpfully outlined for us three contexts that we'll use across the conference and we should use in our Bible reading and as we seek to hear God's word the right way. I'll give you two illustrations to sort of ground why they're important. Think of a car ride. If you're on a car ride across the country, um, you need, there's three contexts you need to pay attention to. You need to know where you're at, what's around you, you need to know where you've been, and you need to know where you're going. And without those three, you're lost. Or think of a puzzle. I'm putting a puzzle together. Um, you need to look at the piece. And you need to see what you've done already. And you need the box. At least I need the box. <laughs> you need the box. You can see where you're going, right? So three contexts for every biblical text. Stare at the text in front of you. 
But then look at it in relationship to what has come before. Because remember, God's revelation has come to us in time, over time. And then, since we read Christian scripture as Christians, we read it in light of the whole of the story. The close context, the continuing context, and the complete context. We will look down at a text, we will look back, and we will look ahead. So we've looked down at the story in front of us. Now, let's look back. How does Noah relate with the story of creation and with Adam? This will develop a bit of what Dr. Wellam started and hinted at in his talk. Well, it relates in a few ways. It's interesting that when Noah was on the ark and the rain stopped, it says God made a wind to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Would you know that in Genesis chapter 1, when the earth was formless and void, we read that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The word for spirit and wind is the same word. Did you notice that some of the other familiar lines between the Noah's story and in the creation account? He blessed Noah and he told him, be fruitful and multiply. He blessed Adam and told Adam to be fruitful and multiply. He delivered into Noah's hand every beast of the earth and birds and everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish. He did the same thing to Adam, giving Adam dominion over everything. Same with the plants. He gave Noah every green plant for food. He did the same thing with near the same vocabulary and phrasing to, to Adam before him. So God, in, Noah, in the Noah story, God, he powers down the earth, boom, shuts it down, and he boots it back up, the spirit blows in the face of the waters in creation, and he blows over the waters again. And then the commission he gave to Adam, now he looks at Noah, and he gives Noah the commission. Through Noah, a new Adam, God brings about a new creation, which means this, that God's redemption promised in Genesis 3.15 is not just a redemption for human beings, but starting with human beings, it extends to the whole of creation. For the fall of mankind into sin corrupted all of creation. It put all of creation under a curse, and everything is headed to judgment. But God is committed to what he started with, his human project, and Adam, and the creation, and it will endure There's another way that the Noah story finds its anchor in the creation story, another watery pun intended. I always happen upon them accidentally, but I almost always decide to keep them. (laughs) I have here. Did you notice that God's covenant with Noah is a covenant with Noah and his offspring and, as we read, all the animals and every living thing and, and the earth Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you. It's for every beast of the earth. God spoke to Adam and gave him the world and God speaks to Noah and gives him the world. And How are these two commissions related exactly? Well, this might seem like a nerd point. It's kind of a nerd point. But it has some payoff for us. So track with me. In Hebrew, there are two words used in relationship to covenant that we'll want to draw our attention to. And this detail exegetical work has been done by others, including Peter Gentry, Dr. Wellam's co-author, on another book that deals with the covenants extensively on this. There's a word used when a covenant is first made. We may translate to cut a covenant. It has roots in a ceremony that went along with the start of a covenant. 
Then there's a second word used, which is used for a verbal reaffirmation of an already existing covenant. And that's the word translated usually to establish. Honestly, in the English, it's like hard to tell. There's even something different going on. It's very consistent. It's exactly consistent all the way across the Old Testament. So let's look at an example right here in the, uh, don't turn there, but the, but the Abraham narrative. So the first word, to cut, Genesis 15, 18. On that day, the Lord made, to cut a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river Euphrates. So he makes a covenant with Abraham. And in chapter 17, we find the word for reaffirmation. Covenant's been made. Now each reference following will use the second word for reaffirmation. 17.7, I will establish my covenant between you, me and you and your offspring after you. And verse 19, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. I will establish my covenant with him. And again in 17.21, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. This is really fascinating. What word do you suppose is used in the course of the Noah story? It's the word used for the verbal affirmation of a covenant. So we may say, God is not saying, I'm starting something new with you, Noah. And we would gather that already from the story. But here, very specifically, we can say that God is saying, I'm renewing something old with you. Noah, with you, I am renewing what I began with Adam. And once we can see this in light of the connectedness between this piece of the Bible's story puzzle and the creation story, it's like laying two puzzle pieces together and we're pretty sure they're fit. But now we're looking at them and they're like Loctite fit. Like seeing how two pieces very specifically connect helps us actually to appreciate the beauty and the depth and the, and the determination of God's plan to save. What God will do later in the story of the Bible is connected very specifically and intimately to what he began in the creation account. As we look back, Noah, we can say, is a new Adam who brings a new creation. Now looking ahead, how does the Noah story point us to Christ? How does this story contribute to the whole story of the Bible? Um, we're just going to give it away a whole bunch across the conference. We're not going to hold it all in and then give it all away in a Jesus talk. Well, there's too much to say about Jesus when we get there. So we're going to give it away as we go. Just as Dr. Wellam has given away how Adam is a type of Christ, so we're going to talk now about how no the Noah story, in particular, points to Christ. Gospel according to Matthew. Why don't you turn there with me? Matthew chapter 24. The wicked of Noah's day were taken by surprise. So it will be again. Matthew 24. Jesus speaks of his return. And if you're listening to him, it's been rough. Woes to the Pharisees, you hypocrites, he says, Warning of tribulation and death for his disciples. Increasing lawlessness. The sun will go dark. And then he warns in verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Our Lord's coming will be like the judgment on Noah's day, but worse. Similar in that it will be a surprise, but it will be worse in that every thought and intention of every human heart will be judged fully and finally and forever. And if you think the image of people drowning helpless in water is terrifying, it's nothing. So don't get caught on the wrong side of the reign of God's wrath. Peter says, he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. An example. So as we have heard the Noah story, my friend, if you are not in Christ, this is what awaits you. It is only a small terrifying picture of what awaits you. For you and I both know that every thought and intention of our hearts are only evil continually. And frankly, I don't know that. I know that because the Bible tells me. I believe what it says about every thought and every intention. Human beings made in God's image are capable of great good. And yet everything that we do is tainted with ill motive. And there's a doctrine of sin to unpack there, which we won't do. The point is simply that you're under judgment. And it's just because you're an Adam. So don't be caught on the wrong side of the reign of God's wrath. Keep listening. The Noah story points us to Christ via judgment. But it points us to Christ in another way. In a way that is as wonderful and greater than this judgment was terrible. As hopeful as the judged were helpless. The Noah story pictures for us judgment. And excuse me, salvation from judgment. Hear this beautiful hope from the prophet Isaiah who spoke years later to a ravaged people of God. He says, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Speaking to Israel and her sin, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. And the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed says the Lord who has compassion on you the Lord has compassion on his people steadfast love and a sure promise thou must save and thou alone and all this leads us to Jesus's life and death and resurrection hear it in the words of Peter to first century Christians 
Peter chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. This is how it gets dealt with. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because he was formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Christ suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So friends, get in the ark. Get in. Come under the blood of God's Son for safety from every drop of God's wrath from heaven. Jesus is the only safe place and Jesus is an ever and an always safe place. And you and I are not saved by the removal of dirt from the body. That's not how baptism works. The water of baptism doesn't save us. The safety of Jesus saves us. And through his death and resurrection, he takes away our sins and he makes us a new creation. There was no surviving the flood in Noah's day and there will be no surviving God's wrath in the day of judgment when the sun comes. That is, outside the safety of the sun. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. The water and the blood. Identification with Noah saved his family from physical death in the downpouring of God's wrath in the form of rain. And identification with Jesus will save those who are his family from eternal death in the downpouring of God's wrath in the form of eternal judgment in hell. And so banking our hope in the crucified and resurrected man from 2,000 years ago is absurd. It really is, unless it's true. And Jesus even promised it would bring us trouble. But Peter found help in the Noah story there too. He said if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials. Christ is absurd, but he is safe. So let's get in the ark. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for your holy word, for the word which you inspired by your spirit, every word, your word, and every word revealing the Son of God, revealing your plan for our salvation through him. We give thanks to you for your wrath-pouring judgment on sin. You are just and you deal justly with sin and that's a good thing. And we give you thanks especially for your wrath-averting plan of salvation from sin through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our safety and our help and our hope, our safe cover under his blood. In whose name we pray, amen.